0: Hello and welcome to Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee, part six, with me Eason. And me Bex. And this episode we're going to be discussing perhaps the most interesting, brutal, emotional, gut-wrenching episode of The Return so far.
1: Mm.
2: Yeah, we're a third of the way in now to this 18-hour movie. I I feel like I, I don't want it to end.
0: It works as individual parts, but the minute the credits roll, it's terrible you just want the next one to appear immediately Mm. and I'm actually really looking forward to the end of the series in one way which is eventually we'll be able to have the whole thing and we can just sit down and maybe watch over a weekend just the whole thing in one go as it's meant to be seen Um, it really is a remarkable piece of television um, and it's so nice to be watching it simultaneously with everyone else yeah Um, it's nice at well here in the UK it's what 3 a.m when the episode ends and we can go on Twitter and suddenly start seeing it, everything lighting up and everyone talking about it. And it's just so fantastic to be a part of a remarkable Twin Peaks fan community.
2: Yeah, over the last couple of weeks, we've had loads of new listeners. We've had loads of people talking to us on Twitter. It's been really fun just chatting to everyone, talking about all the theories that are out there. So we'd like to say a huge hello and thank you to all the all the new listeners, new subscribers feels like a really nice community to be a part of.
0: So I think before we get into the details of what's going on, I think given that it is a third of the way into uh, the new season, it'll be it would be interesting to kind of talk about what it is at the moment. I think this really is turning out to be you know, David Lynch, Mark Frost, really at the height of their powers. They're producing something which is well, I know it's on TV, but if it was in any media, it would be considered like a tremendous piece of art. Like, everything we're seeing is completely unpredictable. Uh, Despite the fact we make these crazy theories every week, Mm -hmm. they're being disproven at an alarming rate. It's so unexpected, and it's really astonishing television. But I think also, given the way that the action is moving at the moment, I don't want to label the way it's structured, but it does feel like we're moving towards the end of Act One.
2: Yeah, it feels like... All the pieces are in place i mean at the, the end of act one is supposed to be the part where all the storylines are in motion and all of the characters are where they need to be so if if you think about it like that it feels like we're maybe maybe one more episode away hmm. but it, it it's getting there it's definitely getting there
0: yeah a, like a bigger narrative is starting to emerge and it does feel uh like People, events, plot lines, they're all starting to converge on Twin Peaks. Uh, And I think that's a really exciting aspect of it, which is starting to build a little bit more as well.
2: Yes, we're getting more and more happening in Twin Peaks per episode as it goes on. I'm assuming that's going to keep happening. I mean, Maybe we can't really assume anything with this. (laughs) Probably the final episode will probably just be all in New York or something. Who knows? Uh, But it, it does feel that way.
0: I think one key thing that we've seen this episode in particular, which is almost like one of the last ingredients that's being thrown into the recipe in this opening act of uh, Twin Peaks The Return, is we're starting to see some really solid callbacks, both directly and indirectly, to the original Twin Peaks and also Fire Walk With Me as well. And it really does feel like this is going to be part of that universe more so than it was maybe in the first few episodes it really feels rooted in the world of Twin Peaks and it's so exciting uh, to be experiencing it and watching it now
2: mm. so should we crack on with the episode
0: let's crack on so part six begins uh, just as part five ended it's got Dougie Coop still at the statue outside the Lucky Seven insurance company staring at the shoes a little bit we talked about that a little bit in the last episode and he seems to be struggling with I think the buttons on his jacket or his sleeve almost like he's trying to pull his jacket off the wrong way or work out what these buttons are doing and the uh, policeman who's kind of patrolling outside has seen him and he saw him at the end of the last episode and is asking him to kind of move on but he realizes something's wrong and they have a little interaction and again you have Dougie uh, repeating this statement he wants to go home but what's interesting this time is that like all the other callbacks that Cooper is experiencing potentially of his real existence he's really attracted to the police officer's badge and he must be remembering in some way that he used to be a member of law enforcement he was an FBI agent as well
2: yeah and the officer seems to sense that there's something wrong because he actually kind of treats him very kindly and very cautiously and then ultimately you see him and another officer taking him home Um, and obviously you you get the feeling that they've also been driving around looking for the red door because they say that he can't remember what his own address is. So they clearly realise that something's not right but they behave with a lot of kindness towards him which is a theme that's been running throughout the way that everyone that Dougie seems to encounter have for some reason seem to go out of their way to help him.
0: But notably here, he also knows that there's something wrong with him. He's not accepting Dougie's behaviour as being the workings of somebody who's okay potentially. Because he does show a lot of concern, which is weird compared to other parts where characters have treated his behaviour as relatively normal for how Dougie is. Mm.
2: So he gets home and Janie kind of takes him in and says oh yeah he's my husband um I'll take care of him thank you for bringing him back and she she makes some comment about how you know this is on a good day when he's this spaced out which suggests that there's been something wrong with him for a while maybe
0: yeah kind of like when in the previous one she says that he's had episodes before whatever that actually meant
2: yeah and he's still got all his case files with him but also the police hand over an envelope that I think has been left outside their house.
0: Yeah, it's very Lost Highway, like the the videotape that gets left outside uh, Fred Madison's house, I think. Yeah. Um, But what's weird about that, and did you think that that was left outside or did you think that he dropped it? So that I couldn't tell.
2: Yeah. Well, I couldn't really see. I couldn't see them, if they'd picked it up. I couldn't see if it was on the doorstep when they arrived at the house or not.
0: Yeah. I just wonder, because if it's something that he had and he dropped it, that might actually imply that it was put there on purpose almost like as a threat like slipped in with his other case files mm. which could imply that you know maybe somebody knows what's going on and is trying to uh, threaten him in some way but I don't know I mean maybe it was just outside and they were picking it up
2: yeah and Janie finally seems like she at last wants to actually get him to a doctor to see if there's <laughs> something wrong with him she calls the doctor by name which implies that either he's been to see a doctor about a problem before or it's their family doctor or something like that
0: yeah I think he makes him a sandwich or something and what's interesting here is that it's again one of those moments where unlike where he's parroting everything that's been done around this time he's actually uh, eating of his own accord although he's kind of scoffing his face a little bit and eating all this stuff so it does imply that he's starting to get some of his sort of critical faculties back in some way but he's still not there yet
2: and then you get that kind of a sweet scene between him and Sonny Jim where he gets really excited about the lamp that goes on and off when you clap mm. and he keeps doing it again and again and Sonny Jim obviously thinks this is some kind of game but actually he just finds it fascinating.
0: Mm. I, th- I think the one thing that's weird about that as well is that presumably it is a game and he's kind of excited by the fact you can clap and do that but I did wonder if that's somehow linked to the way that bad Coop is behaving when he's in the prison in the previous episode you know where he makes that call he's able to control electricity and things like that Mm. I do wonder if maybe there's an element of him clapping being linked to him thinking that he can actually kind of control electricity and experiencing that in some kind of way I don't know if that's a real link but yeah it could just be that he's kind of experiencing it for the first time and thinks it's fun but it could be something else
2: and the other funny thing about that scene is that he offers Sonny Jim a, a crisp or a potato chip. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and Sonny Jim says, I've already brushed my teeth, uh, which is just another callback to, I want to brush my teeth.
0: Yeah, very Bob-like. Yeah. But that nice, calm scene with uh, Dougie Coop talking to his son, Sonny Jim, that's kind of interrupted by Janie downstairs screaming at him because obviously she wants, she's just found the contents of the envelope. And what it has is a picture of Dougie with Jade, probably taken, what, when they're going to the house in Rancho Rosa on the way back or something. Mm. So some surveillance photo. Now, what's funny at first is the fact that Janie doesn't seem to be too surprised by the fact that this has happened. I think she says, oh, do you recognise her or something? And he does, you know, as usual. Oh, that's Jade. Jade gives two rides. He repeats that. <laughs> it's really funny um
2: says like, i bet she did
0: <laughs> it's almost like she's aware of his you know extramarital infidelities in some way and so this must be something that's going on for a long time part of dougie's character it also brings up this idea that you know they owe some money to some people and and both of them are aware of it but there's some talk about you know we need to pay them off blah 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 and this was actually referenced i think in the previous episode as well but the phone rings and it turns out it's probably the people who are demanding the money and they must have been the ones who put the envelope outside as a as a veiled threat saying we know what's going on. And I think this is a really interesting bit from her because Janie actually reveals herself to be, you know, even on the phone, she's extremely tough Mm. and very resilient, very smart and very cunning when she's dealing with these people. So they're obviously making some threats saying you need to pay the money. She is actually remarkably calm. I mean she's She's aggressive, but she she knows how to work the situation as well. And I think that's kind of nice. She's, she's extremely tough. And I think she must have been in a situation before where she's had to defend Dougie in these kind of situations.
2: Yeah, the other thing I noticed when she's talking to them on the phone... So we know that they live on Lancelot Court. And we've had the reference before about it being near Merlin Market. But when she's on the phone to whoever it is that Dougie owes money to... She's talking about where she's going to meet them and she's going to meet them in the park near Guinevere and Merlin. So we've now got Guinevere, which is another Arthurian reference. We've got Lancelot, Guinevere and Merlin. But you know who we haven't had is Arthur. (laughs) And I'm wondering if we're going to get Arthur at some crucial point where we actually get Cooper back. Because if you think about the legend of King Arthur... And the whole thing that he's you know buried in Glastonbury Grove and all that kind of thing it's one of those legends that I think a lot of cultures have actually, where you've got some kind of semi mythical or historical figure who has been mythologized um so that they're either entirely fictional or, or kind of they've become mythologized in a way that makes them larger than the historical figure they were, where there's someone who will come back when people need them (laughs) so you've got that the whole the whole legend about you know king arthur will will return if england needs him and stuff like that and i know that other countries have similar legends about old kings and 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 folklore figures as well and i'm wondering if cooper is going to come back when twin peaks needs him
0: oh that'd be awesome
2: if if somehow he his himself buried underneath the weight of whatever, whatever this is
0: this kind of psychological break he's experiencing
2: yeah and he's going to come back when Twin Peaks needs him. And at that point, we'll get some kind of... We'll actually get the name Arthur thrown into this. Mm. Because it, it's it's notable by its absence at the moment in all these Arthurian references that otherwise knocking around.
0: So on a slightly related point, I mean, we spoke about things in the last episode where it does seem like the world that Dougie's in is heavily influenced by the Lodge in some way. Yeah. So... Do you still think that's happening here? Is it still so? So do you think it is the real world, but with external influences, positive ones potentially from the lodge, trying to guide him in the right direction, or do you think it's artifactual in some way? Or
2: no, I th- I think it must be at least kind of half in the real world. Yeah, because there seem to be events going on around him that are happening even when he's not there. But I think that there's some kind of influence following him around, like a, or, or almost like he's emitting some kind of effect in a radius around him <laughs> that, is, that is making things happen and making people behave in a way that
0: drives him in the right direction. And yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. But but I th- I think he I I I don't think that it's entirely in a dream exactly yeah. or anything like that because you know we, we're starting to see other often quite horrible things happening in Las Vegas now that are linked to him in some way. But I still think that there's something not right with the reality that is surrounding Dougie himself.
0: So two really brief things about the interaction that happens between Janie and Dougie Coop. One is this weird noon 30 thing, which is one of those phrases where I don't know if it's just something which she uses and it's just an odd turn of phrase. I've never heard noon 30 before. It sounded a bit odd. Um, I don't really know if that was an element of like artificial construction of the language. I don't know what was going on. But the other thing was, and I thought it was quite a nice moment, was when she turns to Dougie, who she's kind of been shouting at a little bit about what he's done and says, what a mess you've made of our lives. And I don't think it's said in a particularly malicious way. It's interesting that it really shows that she does care for him and she is very sympathetic towards him but almost like he has been a long-term problem for Mm. Janie. I mean, somebody who she's always having to fix the problems that he brings upon the family. Certainly there are financial concerns which are arising from things. And the fact that she is willing to go and meet these criminals or or bookies or whatever on his behalf, it does show a tremendous amount of loyalty to him as well. Mm. But again, I do wonder, do you think that's because she is being influenced in that, Local radius to help him, and she wouldn't do that normally. I don't know, it's just, it does seem like this episode people are trying to help, but they're also showing a lot more sympathy this time. They know that there's something wrong and they feel they should do something, but in the meantime, they just want to make him as comfortable as possible.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. So Jenny then leaves Dougie to kind of get on with his work, which is kind of odd. I think you'd wonder whether he was actually capable of doing anything. (laughs) And when he looks at the case files, the first thing he does is he kind of looks at the words Lucky Seven Insurance. And his fingers move towards the seven. Seven is repeatedly popping up. I mean, a lot of numbers are popping up in this series, as everyone knows. But he really seems to be drawn towards the seven in some way. Mm. Um, I, I do actually wonder if something interesting is going to happen in, in part seven. Maybe that's when everything is going to take place. It's like some really weird meta narrative. But he's doing that. And then, very unusually, it kind of cuts to the traffic lights. Which I think are the traffic lights at Sparkwood and 21, back in Twin Peaks. You see them changing colour and then you hear that weird hum and crackle of electricity. Mm. It's a weird moment because it seems to be showing something which is happening back in Twin Peaks. But it also implies if if these lodge or supernatural energies are focused over there, it's almost like something is being activated over there. A beacon or something. And by showing that, that kind of fits in with what's happening next with Dougie back in Las Vegas, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, because he starts to see Mike again. He starts to see the red room. I think before he saw him when he looked at a red chair in his bedroom. And this time he's looking at a fireplace.
0: So all the things you see in the red room, like different yeah. items,
2: yeah. Yeah. And and again, he sees the red room kind of f- half phase into his, his field of view. And he sees Mike. Uh, and Mike says to him, you have to wake up. Wake up. And then he tells him, he says, don't die three times which is presumably linked to this idea that of, of Dougie Coop and Bad Coop, one of them has to die. So is he, is he trying to warn him? He clearly knows that Good Coop isn't quite right, yeah? He's not really himself. But seems to think that he's capable of waking up by trying to hmm. <laughs> in some way. But again, it goes back to the idea that there's some, something dreamlike about what's happening to him. In some way not entirely a dream but that he's almost going through life like he's just looking at a dream going on around him
0: do you think that the lodge entities can only influence the world to a certain extent anyway and so he's doing his best or or they're trying to do their best by giving him these signs and pointers but he actually is you know he's saying wake up wake up to try and push the process along to really kind of get him thinking about things and before Mike phases out again, one thing I think is odd about these scenes is that the arm is not around
1: mm. anymore,
0: or the evolution of the arm. Um, I don't know why that is, but I mean, it could be that he's in a different room. And But it does seem that Mike is doing these things independently or potentially in secret. And I do wonder if he's trying to help Coop, but do things which potentially aren't authorised by the rest of the Lodge inhabitants or some, or something. I don't really know what it means, but it's odd that he's wandering around on his own. Mm. Whereas in part one and part two, you clearly saw that him and the evolution of the arm were both trying to help Coop as well. Uh, why you don't see it again, I don't know. Because it's not as if the evolution of the arm is a particularly expensive special effect to keep using.
2: <laughs> yeah. So then he sits down and looks through the case files and he sees these little dots of light shining on it and he starts doodling with a pencil sometimes kind of joining up where the dots of light were making lines and circles all over the page and then he starts drawing what looks like a ladder and then some stairs and then like a a slide or a fall from the top going all the way down to the bottom of the page
0: and then like a scrawly dot as well some some sometimes where it's like landing or something and again I think these dots which are appearing and helping him kind of interact with and annotate these documents uh, they're directly uh, related i think to the green flash he saw in the meeting he was having at the lucky seven insurance company mm. when he accuses tom sizemore's character anthony sinclair of lying he sees that flash on his face and we thought that maybe that implied that his intuition was kicking in in some way
2: mm. but what do you think all those doodles were because he kept doing the same thing again and again a ladder and then stairs and then a drop. And the thing that it made me think of is the encounter he had with Nido in the beginning of part three, where he's in the purple space submarine cube thing. <laughs> um, because don't they go upstairs and up a ladder and then she falls down into nothing?
0: Oh, uh, yeah. That's true, actually. I didn't think of that. So... Yeah, because that that is exactly what happened. And then she falls away into space when she flips the lever and sort of resets the room.
2: So I didn't know if that's him somehow remembering something that's happened to him in the Black Lodge or wherever that place was. Mm. We're not really sure where it was in the purple ocean space place, (laughs) that place.
0: (laughs) That name will never catch on. (laughs) Now, that is really weird because now you say it, it does fit quite well in terms of the series of events and the, the the pieces of the picture he's kind of sketching out i think certainly in light of that given that it could be influenced by these lodge powers as well it did remind me a little bit of the primitive nature of the pictures in Alcave. cave
1: hmm, yeah. you
0: know those kind of very simplistic looking shapes and lines it did remind me a little bit of that and that's what i was thinking of but i think you're right i think this link to the scene with Nido is is actually pretty intriguing and I'm not sure if it's relevant but the two cases that he seems to be looking at one is to do with Nancy Derren and it's like a workplace injury case and the other one is Jake Cavallo which is a burglary at a casino I think but both of those are distinct from the cases that were discussed in that meeting in the previous episode where he accuses Anthony Sinclair of lying Mm. one was Littlefield which was meant to be arson and one is Beakers which is a water main thing that Mm. burst or something but the implication, I think, is that he's looking over Anthony Sinclair's cases. And I think um, obviously what happens later on in the episode is it's implied that maybe the he's lying is actually now followed up with the fact that he's connecting the dots. Wow. And then we switch to the follow up that everyone has been waiting for. We thought it would happen in the last episode, but we finally find out who the mysterious lady is, who mm-hmm. Albert and Gordon Cole want to speak to who might be able to help them figure out whether the person they have in the prison is Goodcoop or some weird iteration of him as well. So following up on this, I know where she drinks statement. We see Albert driving around. I'm not sure where it is. I presume that it could be near their field office, which is in Philadelphia.
1: Yeah.
0: But I don't know. He kind of is driving at night. He's speaking on the phone with Gordon Cole. And what's interesting is that it could just be the way Gordon talks, but Gordon says this is very, very important. Again, doing the very, very in duplicate thing as well. Mm. So that is clearly implying it's linked to the uh, scene with Bad Coop in jail. And it's nice on the other end of the phone you have Gordon Cole clearly being served wine by some <laughs> mysterious young woman who's with him. But yeah, it's, it, it's raining and Albert gets out, makes a humorous sweary quip about Gene Kelly <laughs> <laughs> and turns up at Max Vaughn's bar with that funny electric neon sign that at first I thought was a callback to the Bang Bang bar sign.
2: Yeah, it ha- has a similar vibe to it, doesn't yeah. it? But the bar inside is very different to uh, to the roadhouse. <laughs> there was something about the way they shot the inside of that bar. I felt, like, I felt like I could almost breathe the place in, you know, with that kind of mixture of smoke and beer and sweat and everything kind of loud and muffly and just so packed full of people you feel a bit claustrophobic
0: yeah the ambient noise is really good because it's not like you can hear any one particular conversation you just hear this rumble of things going on just sounds all over the place yeah. and the sound has been awesome in this series so far but that was a really cool moment as well
2: so he goes up to the bar and it's been a long time coming
0: da, da, da. <laughs> we meet
2: diane well, we see Diane. We really get to meet her. Because that's, the the, that's the end of the scene. <laughs> she turns around.
0: Yeah, is she wearing a wig? It's a bit weird. It's like this kind of... Is it like a platinum blonde bob wig that yeah. she's wearing?
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, she's smoking, drinking a martini. And you get Albert saying, Diane, in his gravelly voice. And then she's like, hello, Albert. But the weirdest thing is, when she turns around, she has a look on her face, which seems to imply that she's... A, Expecting him a little bit, or as in, she knows that the next time she would see him again would be something involving something bad or Cooper. I mean, it, like maybe something bad happened twenty-five years ago, mm. and so she left, and that's what set her on this spiral, where maybe she's turned to an alcoholic or something. But it was interesting that she turns around; she has a look which almost is saying, "I've been waiting for this to happen. You know, I knew you would find me eventually in yeah. some kind of way, but." It's just a remarkable moment because all of a sudden this character who we've known as, you know, the person on the end of the dictaphone who's been spoken about and mythologized in Twin Peaks is suddenly on screen. And it's wonderful. It's, you know, it's the Blue Velvet reunion we're all hoping for of Karma Clock and Laura Dern. And what's interesting, actually, is if you look in the autobiography of Dale Cooper, the My Life, My Tapes book, very briefly, he does describe Diane. And he describes it as a saint and a cabaret singer. And I can (laughs) really see the cabaret singer side, certainly, um, in this. I think it's the entry which is dated the 19th of December, 1977. But it's weird that they're having a callback to that in this now. I think a lot of the books are turning out to be far more relevant than anyone could have dreamed. I mean, already we've seen so much of the secret history. But to have these other tie-in documents becoming so heavily used in the mythology of the new season, it's wonderful.
2: In the credits, she's listed as Diane Evans, which I don't know if that means anything. I can't think of anyone else called Evans in the story. Hmm. But then I don't think that she ever had a surname before, did she? She was always just Diane.
0: Always just Diane. But it's, it's interesting because obviously certain people in the series seem to have surnames and certain people don't. Yeah. Uh, so that could be important later on. I don't know. Yeah. So after that very brief scene, which again, teases even more uh, to come, but leaves us dangling. Uh, we then seem to move back to Twin Peaks, and it looks like we're in the old mill. Potentially, it looks kind of half destroyed but half renovated as well. It's kind of unoccupied but clearly being used for sort of illegal meetings between the criminal elements uh, in Twin Peaks.
2: Yeah, cause you, you get that establishing shot of what looks like lots and lots of trucks mm-hmm. with huge um, logs on the back of them, but. I couldn't tell if, it, if it's the burned-out mill or just some kind of semi-abandoned industrial-type building.
0: Yeah, and inside we have a black car, two heavily armed guards. <laughs> like the kind of guns you see in Predator, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, and next to them is the guy we saw at the very end of part two, uh, who was Red, played by Balthazar Getty.
2: Yeah, the guy who was making eyes at Shelley in the roadhouse. Yeah,
0: with the strange finger gun. Pointy business that he was doing. I'm
2: a bit worried about that
0: now. I'm I'm very worried about that now. And who's he talking to? He's talking to Richard Horn, Yeah. Who was the, you know, probably the most reviled character in Twin Peaks history (laughs) as a result of his final scene in uh, part five. I mean, the guy is a complete tool. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it's strange, this scene, because actually it switches perspectives a little bit because he's no longer the aggressive psychopath it almost seems like he's putting that on Mm. because he's actually a very small fish in this whole game Um, almost like he's acting up a lot he's trying to play the play the tough guy and he seems to be sampling drugs which have been brought in from canada by red i wonder if these are the chinese designer drugs which frank truman and bobby are talking about earlier on
2: yeah, does it quit Sparkle?
0: I think so. I wasn't I don't know about drugs. Is that <laughs> it could be one of those generic terms uh which people are using or does it mean that's a particular type?
2: Well, I don't know because when I was a kid, a sparkle was a a, a lemonade flavored ice lolly that you could get from an ice cream van.
0: I don't think that Red is bringing those <laughs> into Twin Peaks. <laughs>
2: But I'd, I'd prefer it if he was. <laughs> if only.
0: It would certainly make Richard Horne a much better person. Yeah. But it would elicit the same crazy high response. <laughs> and it's weird. Red says something like, oh, you can get the rest from Marianne's. And I don't know if that's a, a local establishment, if it's, you know, a place, a pub, a bar or something, or if it's a person. Mm. Um, but to be fair, it's very hard to uh, take into account anything that Richard Horn is saying because he's high as a kite during this whole scene. Yeah. And then we see this bit where, I don't know, Red, I don't know how to describe him. He's kind of like some weird Tai Chi, Kung Fu Elvis doing these crazy moves. <laughs> and he says, like, have you ever studied your hand? It's one of those moments where you know something bad is going to happen. Yeah. You know, it's that kind of line. The way he delivers it, the dude is properly psychopathic, like Frank Booth style in, in Blue Velvet. There's something not right about him. Um he says like he's been around a couple of weeks in Twin Peaks, but that might just be this particular trip. Yeah, he's been back and forth, etc. He makes some bizarre reference to, you know, The King and I, and it's that level of surreal banter that you know something bad is going to happen.
2: Yeah, and he says that there's something wrong with his liver. And he yeah. just like stamps his foot like a horse a bit. I'm not sure what was going on.
0: And it's clear that he's got this big operation, and Richard Horn might be trying to prove himself as somebody who could be the local dealer mm. you know and it's it's interesting you are going to get these parallels with the original series it's drugs coming across from Canada potentially you know local young members of the community involved in selling it um, but I think this red dude just seems far more dangerous than anyone could imagine
2: yeah makes you long for the days of Jean Renaud really doesn't it
0: <laughs> a <laughs> we,
2: psychopath you could trust
0: <laughs> we never thought we'd be saying that
2: <laughs> yeah and at the moment his name is just red he doesn't have a surname in the credits so at the moment, there's an obvious connection there to the Red Room, the Black Lodge.
0: It's probably the bluntest reference that they've made. <laughs> yeah. There have been subtle references to the lodgers in Twin Peaks, but I think just having a character called Red is probably the most blunt force way of doing it.
2: <laughs> yeah, you see the extent to which Richard Horne is clearly completely out of his depth in this situation, because only is he now off his face, on whatever drugs it was that he just took, but but he's also completely I- I incapable of really taking this guy on. He he says something like, "Oh, don't call me kid," and Red just carries on calling him kid because what's he, what's Richard gonna do? Really, he has he has no power in that situation. He's he's completely he's he's trying to put on a front of being you know kind of the big man, but it's not working at all.
0: Yeah, it's really odd because you know that scene which is now pretty infamous now in the roadhouse at the end of the last part. I mean, his behaviour was despicable there. But you see him in this setting here and you realise that Red is potentially far worse and far more dangerous, which is really scary. And the fact that you've got this level of danger and evil in Twin Peaks, it does feel like, you know, that kind of sense of dread, which sometimes engulfed, the original series and was very heavily running through Firewalk with me. There's a lot of bad stuff going on in Twin Peaks, and it's clear it's still there and it's still sort of hidden under the layers of the the facade of a small town.
2: Yeah, and Red does that two-handgun thing again that he did in the Roadhouse, and he says something like, "I will saw your head open and eat your brains if you bleep me over." I can't say it because we have a we have a clean lyric podcast, so I can't say it. But you you know what I mean because you have watched the episode.
0: And then perhaps the most striking moment uh, of Red's behavior, he does a magic trick, and I think this is a weird moment because it suddenly tells you that the magicians are alive and active in Twin Peaks, and that can't be a good thing. This mm. is, it seems like it could very much be a lodge related uh, skill that he has Um, but what he does he takes a coin out Um, he does a bit of hand manipulation with it he flips it in the air and it kind of hovers for a little bit but it's strange because he flips it and when it's spinning it's spinning quite slowly and there's a moment when both Red and Richard Horne are kind of looking at each other and looking at the coin but they're doing it at
2: normal speed normal
0: speed yeah in real time But the coin itself is kind of still going and it's going much slower than it would in the real world.
2: Yeah, which kind of reminds me of that scene um, towards the end of season two with Cooper and Annie in the double R where they have that long chat where the camera zooms out from them and then the plates get knocked on the floor and you get the slow motion kind of coffee glooping out and you suddenly get this kind of weird eerie slow motion happening in an otherwise normal active scene
0: yeah it's it just seems like when these lodge events are pervading the real world they can alter the perception of time almost so people can experience them in real time but they're observing events slow down almost like they can take in the moment and see what's happening it's very strange but as the coin apparently comes down it then appears to be in Richard Horne's mouth. and He yeah. kind of spits it up. And then at the same time, he's very confused, but then Red seems to catch the actual coin. And then Richard looks in his hand and the coin isn't there anymore. And this is not like a, a parlor trick style thing. I think this is generally some weird stuff that Red is able to do. Um, and I think it's really evidence that he has some kind of powers. This isn't like a... You know a cheeky kind of you know uncle pulling a coin out from behind your ear kind of <laughs> thing <laughs> if only it was
2: yeah you, you know what it did kind of remind me of though and th- this is gonna show me up like a proper yeah I grew up in the 80s is the lost boys you know a bit where they're eating <laughs> <laughs> Michael is with the vampires and they're eating and and he keeps looking at his food and thinking that it's like insects and then he looks again and it's normal It's like they're they're doing some weird mojo on him. Um, Yeah.
0: But the only person who could do weird (laughs) mojo like that, getting things back on track from the Lost Boys, (laughs) (laughs) Um, is the fact that we last saw that when the Tremond grandson did that trick with the creamed corn. So when Donna is doing the Meals on Wheels and then Mrs Tremond is like, I specifically said no creamed corn. And then... I can't remember what happened, but she looks at it and it's gone. And then the grandson is there in the chair and he's kind of holding it in his hands. And he's doing this thing where he can really do some weird, crazy mind mojo on people. It's the same kind of thing. And they were clearly lodge related because you see them in the convenience store. And I wonder if Red is from there or influenced by it or even at an extreme level is even related to the Tremond kid in some way. I mean, 25 years later, we know that some of the characters can actually age as well. Like Laura has aged and Mike has aged, for example. That would be very strange if it was, but he clearly is a magician in some way. Um, And I think that could bode very badly for the residents of Twin Peaks. Mm.
2: They do need Cooper back. But you know the bit where he's holding the coin and he says, this is you to Richard about the coin. When he's holding it in his hand, is is that linked in some way to when he says, have you ever studied your hand?
0: Yeah, it could be, because he's doing lots of this kind of close-up magic style stuff. And he says, yeah, you know, heads I win, tails you lose, that kind of thing. I don't know, but there is something funny about him. Um, but that phrase is very telling, and it probably does mean something.
2: Yeah, and it's the first of two very important coins landing heads up mm. of the episode.
0: Oh, that's true. Yeah, going back to the previous appearance of red we saw him doing the crazy finger gun thing at Shelley and it seemed kind of like a friendly thing in the roadhouse before but now it's actually quite sinister because mm. we re- we've seen how dangerous this red character is and I think it's actually quite scary to think that if Shelley is involved with him it would be tragic if it's gonna end up badly for her or potentially also for Becky as well. Mm. Because if there is some relationship which is being established between Shelley and Red, you could almost imagine a situation where Red could be considered like a surrogate father figure to Becky. And given in part five, there were lots of allusions to Becky being a bit Laura-like in how they were presenting her. You could almost see the whole thing happening again, as it were. But it's again it's part of that thing where they're building lots of potential plots which some of which may turn out to be red herrings i don't know um but i would say that both Shelley and red don't have their surnames listed yet in the credits yeah so i do wonder if they're going to be revealed to have the same surname or you know or something else is going to happen but it is a bit weird Uh, i think later when we see Shelley, doesn't she have a ring around her neck like a little yeah, necklace she's, yeah. yeah she's
2: wearing a necklace with a gold ring on it while she's working at the diner and we were talking about Shelley and Becky earlier in the week um, we, we were chatting about it and also we were chatting to some people on Twitter about it, some of the other podcasters we realised that thinking back to the original series we realised that Shelley's family is nowhere to be seen Like even when horrible events befall her there's no sign of her family turning up to help her And in fact, the only people who actually really help her are Norma and Bobby. And we were wondering about what that means in terms of her relationship with Becky. And is she going to want to go the extra mile to help Becky and look out for her because her own family weren't there for her? I I, I, I can kind of see her relationship with Becky or her desire to help Becky as being potentially the one thing that might actually stop Becky becoming another Laura and actually change Becky's fate from, I think, what a lot of people are considering might potentially be her fate, if that's the way that they're setting her up. Because, I, I, you know, she- Shelley's always been one of the good guys, and I, I have to hope that, you know, things are actually going to work out for her, and that she's going to come good. If, even though she has potentially maybe got another disastrous relationship going, she'll get through it somehow, I hope. <laughs>
0: So then we switch to the new Fat Trout Trailer Park. Now, the Fat Trout Trailer Park, very <laughs> difficult to say, uh, was originally seen in Fire Walk With Me. It was a place where Teresa Banks was uh, murdered. Uh, she lived there. There's a few characters who become important in that whole setting. It's where Chet Desmond and Sam Stanley go to investigate the murder afterwards, and Chet eventually disappears. Now it's the new one, and I presume that it's now moved from its original site to somewhere much closer to twin peaks because i think in in fire walk with me the fbi field office is in oregon isn't it and then the trailer park i think is in washington but it's not actually that close to uh where twin peaks is yeah and we see for the first time in many many years the appearance of carl rodd played by the wonderful harry dean stanton who is still there managing the trailer park he meets a friend called bill they're about to go into town and this guy mickey runs up to them and says he needs to get a lift into town because he needs to pick up Linda's mail Hmm. at the P.O. box.
2: I thought it was going to be because he needs to buy new trousers.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They do seem a bit big for him. (laughs) Uh, And, uh, yeah, we suddenly have potentially the Linda in the Richard and Linda saga, which has been building for (laughs) all of five weeks. So one of the giants or question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark's uh, original clues or statements was Richard and Linda. And, you know, it's possible that the Richard refers to Richard Horn introduced last episode, but now we have the mention of a Linda. Now, they don't seem to be linked at the moment, but potentially they could interact. I do wonder if maybe this could be a bit of a misdirect and maybe it's a Mike and Bobby situation. Yeah. Because we thought that Mike and Bob the Lodge spirits uh, were actually Mike and Bobby, the uh, high school kids in the original series. So it could be that their names being used by real characters. Um, It could even be that their names being used by the spirits who are inhabiting other characters. We don't really know at the moment. But at least we can say we do actually have a Richard and a Linda on the books at the moment.
2: Yeah. And it's not clear whether Linda is Mickey's wife, sister friend whatever it is but he's obviously going to run errands for her and we learn in the conversation that they have in the van that linda has just been delivered an electric wheelchair yeah and there's some implication that she might be a military veteran yeah because um carl makes some comment about war or something yeah. like that it's not explicitly stated but i think that's the connection we're meant to take
0: yeah i think when they're talking about whether the new wheelchair has arrived or been paid for by the government um carl is like oh effing war you know that yeah. kind of thing. so it's interesting that that's being brought up because it doesn't even really seem obvious how that would link to a complete idiot like richard horn yeah <laughs> you know but uh there could be something that turns out later on, maybe with a future interaction.
2: And then we get a brief scene in the double R where we get Heidi talking to a customer whose name is Miriam.
0: Yeah, I thought it was Marianne. So I was, I was thrown for a second thinking it was the Marianne who Red is referring to, but you're right, it's Miriam.
2: Yeah, and she's come in to eat a double portion of pie because she loves it so much. And she's a school teacher, and she, I presume at the local primary school because she talks about how this year's kids are really cute or something mm. like that. She leaves a massive tip to Heidi and Shelley and they make some comment about how she can't possibly afford such a tip. And they're going to give her some free pie next time she comes in or something.
0: Yeah, it's actually really nice to see Heidi again. I mean, mm. she had those two bookending appearances in the original series, you know, the first scene and one of the last scenes as well. And it's funny that they've kind of really overdone her character and distilled her down to being exactly the same person with the same hair and having that kind of crazy giggly laugh that she does all the time Um, again it says moments where it reminds me that when they want to do levity and real life they can really do it very well but I think it's almost quite sad that they juxtapose a scene like this you know people having fun eating pie with what happens in the following scenes
2: yeah so then we get all of these scenes kind of converging you've got Richard, who's driving in his truck, still completely high on whatever it is he's taken, and he's really angry and agitated about the encounter he's had with Red, and he's angry about him calling him Kid, which, I mean, I I know at this point we don't know how he's related to the rest of the Horn clan, we don't know who his parents are, but it was something that always annoyed Audrey, which was that she didn't get treated as a grown-up when she felt that she should be.
0: Yeah, a lot of the early conflict she had with Ben Horn was always about that. Um, and she would always act out, wouldn't she? Yeah. In order to get his attention or prove that she was more grown up than she actually was.
2: Although, I suppose the worst thing she ever did was tell a room full of Norwegians that uh, somebody had just been found dead by the river. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which, in the grand scheme of things, uh, is not quite so terrible yeah. compared to what happens next. So, you've got him driving... Uh, You've got Carl, who is sitting on a bench, drinking a Double R to Go coffee. Their coffee gets everywhere, him because everyone seems to have one of those. And looking up at the trees, listening to the wind rustling through them, just kind of slowly taking in the world, and sees this mother and son playing and running past him, playing some kind of stop-go-tag kind of game. And then you get this horrible realisation that all of these things are converging in the same place at the same time
0: yeah and then we see perhaps the most intense and graphic horrific scene that has been played out so far in Twin Peaks so we have Richard Horn driving erratically there's a stop sign up ahead and in order to go around the queue of cars he switches lanes and kind of goes on the outside of them there's a stop sign um, ahead and it's an awful moment because you can see what's going to happen you can sense that something bad is going to happen with the kids running out in front of the car Uh, the child runs out uh, beyond one of the trucks at the stop sign and he runs right into the path of Richard Horn, who hits him head on in his truck and it's an incredibly intense sad sort of tragic scene you see it head on there's no there's no cutaway or anything it's very very graphic and it's that moment where you realize that genuine horror has taken place in this town it's almost like it the world stops completely and you see what happens with the most unflinching eye over the events uh, you know so you have the child knocked down you have the mother kind of cradling him and there's this tremendous sense of melancholy and dread the kind of thing that they they felt occasionally in the roadhouse you know when everyone would burst into tears and mm. feel upset there's this there's this sense of shock and grief which ripples through that scene and people are standing around in shock no one knows what to do but it's almost like we as viewers kind of knew what was going to happen you're able to watch it but you can't intervene and there's a sense of inevitability about not just this but some of the things that happen in the world of Twin Peaks it was almost like what happened to Laura was inevitable Mm. because everyone saw it but they didn't do anything about it and the same thing is kind of happening again you see people covering their eyes and it's all extremely shocking but then what you have is Carl who's whose kind of serenity has been broken by the scream of the child and also the crash, he kind of snaps out of it a little bit. And he appears, and he's the only person who goes up to the mother and the son. He kind of stares at her a little bit, and he's not really afraid. He looks upon her with extreme sadness and compassion and comfort. But it just reminds me of the fact that you know he always said... You know, he's been places and he's. Mm. I think he's just seen so much and he's seen many, many terrible things. And it's interesting that he's the one who kind of offers um, sort of non verbal support to that situation, just as everything is, it seems, in chaos around that whole scene.
2: But he also sees what. Well, we see it as well, but it seems like nobody else sees it, only, only Carl, is this golden shimmering light disappearing up into the sky which I don't know if it's meant to represent the boy's spirit
0: yeah it's like a weird yellow flame thing isn't it kind of like the the flames that Cooper saw above the casino um, slot machines I mean the other thing I thought it could be given it was yellow and not like orangey like fire was whether that was the boy's Garmin Bosia being spirited up so Mm. the pain and suffering caused by this accident uh, for all involved has resulted in that if it was if it was triggered by a lodge related influence if it was designed to you know spirit away his pain and suffering to feed the you know the evil that lives in in Twin Peaks.
2: Because it does hover up and over the electricity wires.
0: Mm. Now the really key thing is that there are some slightly conflicting aspects of where this is happening. So the stop sign, this junction, is actually the one which featured in Fire Walk With Me. It's the one where uh, Leland and Laura are driving along, but they're being chased by Mike in that kind of camper van next to them. And he drives up alongside them in order to warn Laura and to try and stop Leland in some way. It's where he's shouting, you know, the, th- the thread will be torn and... Uh, Telling Laura, it's your father. It's him, you know. Trying to tell Laura that Bob is is inhabiting Leland as well, and it's that same junction which is really interesting. So that places the, obviously the event in Twin Peaks. But at the end of the scene, we cut to a telegraph pole. Again, there's the usual imagery of wood and electricity. But what's notable is that the number on the telegraph pole is 324810 with a big six underneath now that telegraph pole i thought was actually originally one that was in the first fat trout trailer park so i don't know how that fits in because that original trailer park was in deer meadow it wasn't in twin peaks and this is very near the double r diner so i don't know how it works geographically but They cut to the same pole where you see and hear the electricity buzzing through these wires, which is something to do with the energies of the uh, of the lodgers as well. And as um, the guy speeds away, Richard Horn, he does look and he sees Miriam and they kind of have a moment where they lock eyes. I don't know if that means they know each other. Or if that's going to become important later on when he realises he has to, you know, go after one of the witnesses or something.
2: Yeah, which implies it is taking place down the road from the double R because she's carrying the double R to go coffee cups yeah. to her car by the looks of it. Which means she's only just left the diner.
0: But the thing that throws all these theories is there's a dude in the background who looks like Moby. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it really, is. I, don't it know really if it, is. I don't know
0: if it is Moby, but there's a guy that looks like Moby in the back.
2: Well, it could, could be Phoby. <laughs>
0: It could just be the Dean from Community.
2: It's yeah. so hide up there for a fake movie.
0: <laughs> and the one thing, just to go back to that idea of the um, the flame, I was just thinking, actually, yeah. that also tells us that, like Cooper, can see the green flash and the dots guiding him.
1: Yeah,
0: Carl can also see these things as well, potentially. Yeah. And again, we know from the secret history that he has been involved in lodge-related activities. So he was... Um, abducted or disappeared Uh, when he was young he went on a trip with the log lady and another guy as well and he has a scar as well like one of those triangular scars Um, so he's experienced these things before now the fact he can see these things means that he's kind of in tune with what's going on uh, which is clearly I think going to become important in the future but also I wonder could you interpret his response to seeing that flame I think he sort of he looks at it and he's like oh my god or something do you think he saw the same thing when Theresa Banks was murdered? Because she was murdered uh, at the yeah. trailer park when he was there. And I do yeah. wonder if maybe he's seen it before and he is sensing that something bad is going to happen again as well.
2: Yeah. Problem is that now I'm just wondering if Moby has an evil doppelganger.
0: Or many of them. <laughs>
2: So now we return to Las Vegas, and Mr. Todd is back, which I think is only the second time that he's appeared now. We saw him really briefly saying, tell her she's got the job, and handing a load of money to that other dude, the mentalist. Uh, (laughs) But this time he's sitting in his office, and this red square materialises on his computer. And he obviously knows what this is a signal for, because he immediately opens a safe, and then very carefully with the tissue... He picks up an envelope, which is obviously him not leaving his fingerprints on the envelope at all. And the envelope has a black dot on it. And then the next time we see that envelope, it's being pushed underneath the door of a hitman. So he's obviously being signalled by person or persons unknown to arrange some kind of assassination of somebody. We still don't really know who it is, who is the malign influence in his life when he says... You should hope that you don't have a person like him in your life or something like that. But whoever it is seems to be able to manipulate his computer and seems to be involved in the botched attempt on Dougie's life with the car bomb. So it's all kind of leading back to potentially is it something to do with Jeffries?
1: Yeah.
0: So I think we've had the moment in the previous episode where Bad Coop is able to influence communications. We know that he's been communicating with Jeffries, or somebody who claims to be Jeffries, and we know that the other person who used similar equipment and could be related is Windermere. So yeah. there are a few characters floating around now who may be involved, either in the form they've been shown in already, or in some doppel form. But it's clear that the influences that are manipulating characters like mr todd are lodge related ones that have the power to manipulate communication systems and electricity etc
2: yeah and when he opens the safe i didn't really get a good look at all the contents but was there some kind of black metal box inside it as well as the envelope
0: i don't know like well, like what what like one of the communication boxes
2: yeah or well, it could have just been the shelf in the safe i don't know i didn't really get that good look it, it looked like there was something glinting off it like there was a a kind of boxy metallic black shape in there in some way. Hmm. I didn't know if that meant that he also had one of the boxes that was in Buenos Aires.
0: Hmm, interesting.
2: Could just be my my mind-pain tricks on me.
0: (laughs) So then we go back to Rancho Rosa, where it's the aftermath of the car explosion, where the two hitmen rigged the car, and then people trying to steal the car triggered it when they tried to take the car away. And the police are all over the place. The car, you know, bits of the car have gone everywhere. The number plate, which will clearly be used to identify whose car it is. And I remember that Janie earlier on in the episode says, oh, where's your car? And it hasn't been found. Yeah. The number plate is Dougie's. And it's on the roof of the house opposite where he was with Jade. So it's actually on top of the roof where the drugged out mother is sitting. And she's still there. And I don't know if it's the same footage of the original scene or not. But she's there wailing, you know, 119, 119, again, saying it backwards. But we don't see her son this time. No. Um, and it's kind of odd because they're on the roof, but I'm not sure if she realises that they're there. And I don't know if, again, a bit like the Tremonds or the Chalfons or whoever, are they actually characters who exist? You know, or are they kind of occupying this this space, but they're not actually the real inhabitants? Because remember, the Tremonts were in a house yeah. But there was actually somebody else in reality living there. Yeah. So I don't know whether... Maybe the boy is, is real, but the woman is not, or both of them are not real, and there's other people living there. Or maybe the house is unoccupied, and we're seeing sort of these lodge spirits inside looking out over what's happening at, um, on the Rancho Rosa estate.
2: And then we cut to a motel where we we get introduced to Ike the Spike. <laughs> Who is the hitman who's having the envelope with the black spot on it delivered? And I wondered if the the black circle on it was actually referenced to the black spot, which was that thing in kind of pirate law that meant someone was marked for death or something like that. I didn't know if that was a
0: well yeah, because that would be like an obvious code that you would use to say these people are you know are marked. It does remind me of Mulholland Drive where everyone's just handing each other envelopes of people who they want killed, <laughs> <laughs> you know, with nice. Yeah, with nice, you know, A4 glossy prints of people saying, you know, this is the person. Yeah.
2: yeah. And when he pulls the pictures out of the envelope, that piece of music that plays whenever the, the woman who had been organizing the previous set appears, it, it just starts playing when her when her picture comes out of the envelope.
0: You should have put it in again it would have stopped and just <laughs> opened it out and and continue to slip it in and out to see if the music started and stopped.
2: It's like one of those birthday cards that plays a tune when you open it. <laughs> <laughs> And you keep playing little snippets of it. Uh, uh, oh, uh, oh, no, uh. <laughs> but he doesn't do that. Instead he stabs bits with an ice pick.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's the alternative. Yeah, it's really weird because it's the the things that it me of were not only like scratching them when he's spiking them, but you know the original that crazy card, the playing card that evil Coop had when yeah. he was and he was showing Dowry and he said, You know, do you know what this is? you know that was you know a defaced ace of spades but the middle thing had like some weird black splodge in it as well now we thought it may be like an owl symbol or that but it's weird again we see this weird black dot as well and maybe it's it's linked to that it could be like a symbol which is linked to the person who is orchestrating this whole series of events as well but one of the pictures is of Lorraine and Lorraine is the woman who was sort of on the phone and coordinating the two hitmen to take out Dougie. And the other picture is um, Dougie himself. But notably that has a business card on it. Yeah. So it's saying this is the guy, Dougie, and this is his place of work. Yeah. Which Uh, suggests
2: that he already knows where to find Lorraine. Yeah. Because there's no explanation of who she is.
0: And boy, later on is he going to find Lorraine.
2: (laughs) But... The strange thing that he's doing in the hotel room, he's rolling two dice over and over again and writing something down in a notebook. And I tried to, to look as close as I could to what he's writing in the notebook. And it looks like just a series of columns on every page with numbers in them. Like he, he's rolling and then making a note of whatever the result of the dice is over and over and over again. And I don't know if we're ever going to get an explanation of why he's doing that if it's just something that he enjoys doing. But it got me thinking of one of my all-time favourite plays, which is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead*. And it was actually a combination of this and all of the coin-flipping, landing on heads that goes on in this episode. And I'm sure this isn't something that they intended to put in, this is just my own mind making the connection. If you don't know the play, so Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are the hapless courtiers in Hamlet, Who get caught up in things really beyond their understanding and end up as a couple of pawns in this terrible game that's going on in the Danish court. And as you can imagine things do not end well for them as they don't end well for pretty much everyone in Hamlet. But there's a play by Tom Stoppard called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead, which is a a comedy. It's very very funny. It's pretty bleak at times but it is very funny which essentially follows those two characters as the centre of the play and imagines effectively what's going on in their lives in and around when they get sucked into this court intrigue that actually goes on in Hamlet. So when, if you can imagine it, that the actual events of Hamlet are happening off in other rooms where they're not permitted to go or they're not important enough to understand what's happening so by and large there are a couple of fairly kind of hapless people who are just bumbling around trying to get by they've you know they've been called by the king to do something so they can't say no and they find themselves just completely out of their depth in what's going on and they spend a lot of their time philosophising about the nature of fate and chance and free will I'm not not really saying this is a comedy it is a really really funny comedy but One of the things that kicks off their thinking about free will and fate and luck is right from the very beginning of the play, um, they are spinning coins together. And they say that they've been doing this since as long as they can remember. They've been spinning coins together. If it lands heads, one of them wins the coin. If it lands tails, the other one wins the coin. And in all of their years spinning coins together, they've never been more than a couple of coins up or down on each other because a coin's going to land heads pretty much as many times it's going to land tails. But the reason they know that something weird has happened to their lives, that maybe their fate has been taken out of their hands and that they are being subject to forces that they don't understand, is that the coin keeps landing heads over and over again. 60, 70, 80, 90 times in a row, it lands down on heads. And while one of them is quite blase about this especially as he's winning every time it lands down on heads the other starts to become deeply afraid and agitated about what this means for his own free will and you know it, it's partly about being a, a character in a play and of course the character has no free will because their entire story has been written for them but th- there's some, because there's something about everything that's happening in Twin Peaks at the moment which is suggesting that reality is being shaped somehow particularly the stuff going on in Las Vegas that you know things are not happening by chance that coins are not falling by chance and when I saw him rolling those dice over and over again it just reminded me of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern flipping that coin over and over again hoping for a different result because a different result might mean that there is some kind of free will in their lives which ultimately there isn't.
0: Hmm, So maybe... Everything is inevitable and indeed will happen again.
2: Yeah. Or he really likes rolling dice. <laughs> <laughs> That's the other explanation. But I don't know if he was trying to find some pattern in what he was doing, or if it's just a compulsion that he enjoys rolling dice. But I just I just started thinking about how it things as I often do.
0: But it does add to the whole gaming imagery which we're seeing in this season. It's everywhere. Yeah. It's dominoes, dice, playing cards all throughout Twin Peaks and it's being played up very heavily in these scenes at the moment.
2: Yeah and a pair of dice is the logo of Lucky 7. Ah, yeah. It's on the front of their brochures.
0: Which is where he's going to end up a bit later on. Yeah. (laughs) Right so Dougie Cooper has gone through the case files he has now gone back to work at Lucky 7 Insurance. There's a nice little elevator scene where he's kind of looking at it trying to work out how to get out and his friend Phil Bisbee is beckoning him out just when he can. He's enjoying his coffee. He's overwhelmed by what's going on. It's a really funny little moment that he has there.
2: Yeah. And it's also notable that he's actually enjoying it. He's got a smile on his face. He doesn't seem quite as befuddled. It's like when he was clapping the lamp on and off.
0: Yeah. That kind of severity has gone. He's starting to feel a little bit more chipper, I suppose. But what is notable is that he's in his black suit again. Yeah. So for the first time he's come to work and he's back in his original suit that was i think sent for dry cleaning by Janie in part three part four or something but he's clearly back with that and you know for all we know he even got dressed himself as well which would then be another piece of evidence that he's able to do things a little bit more for himself and what's nice is that his cup has got his own name on it it's not frank's anymore Hmm. frank's probably switched to green tea lattes So he is called to a meeting with his boss, who's Bushnell Mullins, uh, played by the wonderful Don Murray, who is clearly, again, a bit exasperated with Dougie's behaviour. What's notable is when he's been called into the meeting, you see Anthony Sinclair, which is uh, Tom Sizemore's character, mm. very suspicious about what's going on. He's kind of looking out through this, you know, the the glass open office style that he's in. Mm. He almost senses that something is wrong. He looks very suspicious, as Tom Sizemore always looks. (laughs) And he looks very concerned that his game is up, especially after that uh, moment in the previous episode where Cooper had the intuitive response to know that, you know, he was lying about the insurance claims that he was um, passing off as ones that needed um, approving. So Dougie Cooper meets with uh, Bushnell, and Bushnell is kind of just staring at the files, and they've all got these crazy pencil scrawls all over them it's weird because i don't know what happens in a normal insurance agency but if you had a stack of files over to somebody and they hand them back and they've got pictures of ladders and, <laughs> you know and like swirls and lines and all, and steps and things mm. like that you'd probably be thinking you know this is not like this hasn't been done properly this hasn't been done at all yeah. you know and he kind of says you know what am i supposed to do with this And there's an exchange which results in Cooper sort of repeating this, you know, make sense of it. Mm. And again, you get the sense that he's starting to realise that you have to understand the code, almost. And whilst Bushnell is looking at the documents, you see Dougie Cooper looking at the boxing poster, which is of Bushnell when he was much younger. Um, What do you think that was about? Because he stared at it again in the previous episode when he first saw it.
2: Yeah, I've... I've got two ideas of what it might be. I'm not sure if he's looking at this image of this kind of young, clean-cut, dark-haired man and remembering himself in some way back when he was young Cooper and in the FBI. Or, because he keeps looking from the poster to Bushnell now, I don't know if it's dawning on him, the passage of time, that has actually moved. Because I don't know what year that poster is. But, it, I mean, it could literally be from 25 years earlier. That could actually be, because he could have been 25 and now he's 50. Hmm. That would kind of work. Hmm. Um, but it, it's like he's making a connection of, if that's him, then a lot of time has passed and I'm I older now as well. Or he's seeing something of himself in, in the young man in the poster.
0: Yeah, I mean, related to that, they haven't really touched upon it, but because he's been unable to articulate what he's thinking the world must be very different now mm. to when he went into the lodge yeah they haven't really touched upon it but everything has changed technology exists i mean so i i know lots of people are talking on, online about the fact that there's potential for um altered timelines maybe this is set in the past or you know there's lots of theories about this and none of them have been proven wrong they could all be um a potential at the moment. But it's just strange that they haven't addressed the fact that Cooper has been in a time capsule for 25 years. He's emerged into a very different world. And maybe that's an element of how jarring everything is to him.
1: Mm.
0: He's turned up and everything has changed. And maybe he's in shock at that as well. Uh, Rather than just, you know, I mean, I'm sure there are problems with having been kept in the Black Lodge for 25 years. (laughs) That's going to do something to you. But maybe things are just starting to make sense a little bit as well, because he's coming to in very unfamiliar surroundings
2: you know no one's asked him where's your mobile phone they've asked him where his car is where his wallet where his ID is Janie's never asked him where's your phone why didn't you call me
1: hmm.
2: something straight but then Twin Peaks has always been kind of timeless yeah. in the way that it's you know it, it, it was the 90s by way of the 50s before <laughs> but we it, it's 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 almost like in his bubble he's being protected from Modern technology in some way. I, I don't know, but there's it, it. must be. It must be strange in some way. That seeing the light going on and off was strange.
0: But maybe not for him. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Bushnell is going through the pages. He looks confused. He's very frustrated first, but then what happens is he almost starts to see patterns in what's yeah. being written on all the insurance documents. And this reminded me of Cooper's original phrase: you know, "Break the code, solve the crime." It's almost like that's the code that he has... Put down on these pages, and it can be interpreted. If you understand, if you figure it out, it will make sense. And immediately Bushnell realizes what Dougie Cooper has been trying to do. Hmm. And I think the implication that he is that he keeps highlighting the same names popping up and again and again on these documents, and implying that Sinclair is involved in some very dodgy insurance fraud. And maybe his statement, you know, he's lying is true, and Bushnell is probably feeling a little bit bad because he dismissed it so quickly um, before. And immediately Bushnell's attitude changes towards him. He is suddenly a lot more sympathetic and he's, I think he says, you know, you're an interesting fellow. Yeah. You know, he kind of treats him with more appreciation than he has before, although he's never been particularly aggressive towards him. And he's very thankful of the fact that he's pointed this out. But I think he also must believe that this has been written in a code for a reason, mm. almost like it maybe was too dangerous for him to explicitly write anything. So he believes that this is a way that Dougie can convey the fact that he has evidence without explicitly stating it, but it's something that Bushnell can understand.
2: And I wonder if when Dougie was manufactured, we still don't really know who manufactured him, but could it have been that he was manufactured in a way that he, he would naturally behave like a bit of an audible when he was Dougie? And that therefore, if at any point in the future, Coop came back out of the black luggage and took his place, it wouldn't be an immense contrast to the way that he was before.
0: That would certainly explain why people aren't behaving in a completely bonkers fashion towards him. (laughs) Almost as if they see a more extreme version of who he was before and they're Mm. not freaking out completely. That's a really interesting idea. I mean, it does imply that they prepared that element of it. So as he's rehabilitated into the real world, he can blend in a little bit whilst he's doing it. Yeah, and just to reiterate, I mean, I think we have these funny symbols. I don't really know what they mean. I think your point about Nido is probably the most important one here, actually. Um, Again, I mean, it could just be something to do with uh, the owl cave map, the same kind of pictograms that they had there. Um, I wasn't sure if the ladder... And that weird slope was something to do with the piece of the car that was on the roof of the one nine one one nine woman's house as well. Oh, because yeah. it, it's got it's got the policeman on a ladder and then there's a slope of the roof and things like that. Um, the famous staircase is the Palmer staircase. You know, which yeah. has been seen many, many times. So maybe he's having visions of that, I don't know. The ladder, I thought, it could even be train tracks you know but whether that's a real link i don't know it could even be those kind of ladders you see on the side of train cars as well because because the train car where laura and ronette were taken was was similar like that and again there is something funny about that That scrawl at the end was something to do with the marking on that ace of owls card or whatever it was that was thrown up later on
2: Then we get this wonderful scene where Janie has gone out to meet the loan sharks who are after dougie for the money and one of them is played by Jeremy Davies, who always seems to be playing these kind of slightly inept, low-level criminal types. With a mullet. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I remember him most from Justified. Yeah. Where, was he one of the Bennett clan, I think? Yeah, it was Dickie. Dickie yeah. Bennett. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Dickie Bennett. Justified is a fantastic show, if you haven't seen it. You should definitely give it a go. So it's him and his, his kind of mate who have come to meet her to demand... What is now fifty two thousand dollars for what was originally a twenty thousand dollar debt three weeks earlier that Dougie incurred while gambling too much. So this is obviously something that he's done in the past. He's been a bit of a gambler and maybe this is why Janie wasn't too surprised when, you know, he got himself into trouble again. And maybe potentially why she was so shocked. And worried when he first came back and he'd been missing for three days, maybe she was worried that something really bad had happened to him, like one of these loan sharks had finally decided to kill him or something. But you get this wonderful tirade from her against them, basically saying, how dare you try and charge this much money? get 1% interest at my bank if I'm lucky. And it's, it's an incredibly gutsy thing for her to do, because if you think about it, she's got a bag with two... Twin- no, four hundred grand. Four hundred mm. grand, isn't it? Plus, in her house, she could easily have actually given them the fifty odd grand that they were demanding, but she doesn't. She goes there and she she gives them an earful, and basically says, "You know, you're everything that's wrong with the world. How can people have no compassion for the suffering of other people? We don't have fifty grand to give you. I'll give you twenty five grand, and that's my my first, last, and only offer." Um, and they're so taken aback by this that they just say, well, yeah, okay." (laughs) they've got they've got a five grand profit and they've got their money back. So, you know, they they just they just watch her go slightly in awe of the fact that she's just gone there and demolished them in a park. Lots (laughs) of kids playing nearby and she's just gone there with her purse and just shouted at them for for a good five minutes. It was a great scene, I thought.
0: Yeah. So then we go to an extremely violent scene, which is thrown (laughs) into the mix here. So Lorraine, who was a woman on the phone who was organising the hit on Dougie Coop by the two hitmen, she's on the phone possibly with one of the hitmen and you can hear her saying, you know, oh, he wasn't in the car, there are three bodies, she seems completely rankled by the whole thing. And certainly she was concerned when she had to call the phone in Argentina last time, if that's what was happening. And maybe she knows that it's not going to end well for her either. Mm. So we heard some screaming and then, like the spike... (laughs) or uh, I I think uh, we ended up calling him uh, Jean-Luc Ice Picard. (laughs) Uh, He then uh, emerges slightly bloody, growling in some bizarre way, holding his ice pick, having already taken out one or two people, runs into the office where Lorraine is sitting. She gets up, screams, and he kind of runs towards her. There's a minor chase, but he corners her and then stabs her repeatedly with the ice pick. And then if that's not enough, you know, with this kind of lost highway, Mulholland Drive style graphic violence, he then kind of jiggles the ice pick around quite a lot. Uh, again, growling in a weird kind of very aggressive, angry way. It's very bizarre and very strange. I mean, it's kind of, you know, it's got a strange comic horror aspect mm. to it as well. And then when he's killed her and you know, blood is everywhere and he's covered in blood as well, He looks at the door, and there's that woman who's kind of standing there, thinking, "I really shouldn't have seen this." And she tries to run, and you can see him just kind of pounce as he runs after her. And it really reminded me of that bit in Mulholland Drive when, you know, the hitmen are talking in the office, and Mm. then, you know, the gun goes off, hits the person in the room next door, and then they have to kill the woman who was cleaning the room, and then and then another gun goes off or something, and then the, the Hoover starts; it goes crazy. Um, there's that sense of the surreal nature which violence can escalate you know on a positive feedback loop it just goes absolutely crazy it's intensely bloody violent moments uh, in the middle of the thing yeah but it's also sad when he's kind of walking back out after killing that other woman and he's looking at his broken ice pick <laughs> like it's a toy that he's broken um he's like oh no <laughs> you know he's like a proper uh a proper psycho in the uh Frost lynch universe i think and very memorable
2: yeah and presumably he's now going to turn up either at dougie's home or i think more likely dougie's work because he's got dougie's business card so Ooh. if he's going to know where to find him it's going to be his office and i'm intrigued to know what's going to happen
0: well i think, I think we all hope that tom sizemore gets in the way first yeah <laughs> uh, there's probably other people and there's probably a few other people who would be uh, really interesting to see him take out in twin peaks as well at the moment
2: yeah but I, I fear for the dude who carries the coffee. I really do. <laughs> uh, he, it's gonna be him, isn't it? You can't you can't run when you're carrying that much coffee. Although I suppose you can always throw the coffee at someone who was attacking I you. I can
0: see that being the last thing he ever does. <laughs> before being spiked by Ike.
2: <laughs> oh dear. We shall see.
0: So then we go back to the repercussions of Richard Horn's hit and run and we see him pull up in sort of the middle of some open clearing, There's a couple of other cars around, and you see him getting out and wiping the blood from the front of the grill it kind of just adds to the horror of that whole scene to see him trying to scrub it all away and get rid of it but also his behavior he's so twitchy he seems all of a sudden like really cowardly and afraid and in over his head Mm. Um, and it makes his behavior even more bizarre I mean what he did at the roadhouse was unforgivable but you realize the guy is just messed up mm. he really is and he's in a bad situation and that's kind of where it's left hanging but you know there's going to be repercussions I mean there was that woman in particular Miriam who saw what happened and I think it's not going to end well for her either
2: yeah and I can imagine that because the Horn's such a big family in Twin Peaks are people going to know him recognize him yeah are they going to know him as the son or grandson or whatever of the of the big rich family who own the Great Northern?
0: Unless he hasn't been around for that long and mm. he's like going to be returning and that's going to be the thing that makes everyone aware that there's a new horn in town.
2: Although if he's been there the whole time, if he's grown up there and she's a school teacher, she might have taught him at school once. Ah, she might know exactly who he is.
0: That's a very good point.
2: Mm. <laughs> Just mulling that one over. I mean, if she's a primary school teacher, it might have been a long time ago, but she might, she might already know him.
0: Yeah, I don't know if she was old enough, but she might be. I can't she remember now. That'll be really interesting. Especially maybe if she knew him as somebody else.
2: Hmm. We we've just got to find out who he is. Yeah. So then we go back to the sheriff's station, and Hawk is in the men's room, and he reaches into his pocket and a coin drops out. I don't know if it's a, a quarter or a, a nickel or, or what it is. Um, I didn't know if there was going to be significance to it being a quarter because it's 25 and silver and all these things that keep cropping up again and again. Um, but I, I apologise if it's really obvious to everyone in the US that it's clearly not a quarter and we're just being a couple of idiots. Um, but it, it rolls under the stool uh, and he goes to fetch it and he picks it up um, and it's landed heads up, and he he looks at it, and it's um got like a a Native American head figure on it, and he looks around like it, it's clearly it's clearly thinking all the time about what this message that the log lady gave to him means. That something's missing. You have to find it. The way you will find it is something to do with your heritage. So this this clearly rings some kind of bell in him, thinking. Is this the thing that's that's going to trigger something happening? And he looks around and he sees on the door of the stall that uh, there's a, a manufacturer's label on it that reads Nez Perce Manufacturing. Yeah. Which, as we know from Secret History of Twin Peaks, is Hawks tribe. He clearly thinks that this is some kind of sign, and when he notices that they're door of the stall is damaged at the top corner and is a bit open, he goes and fetches a crowbar on a ladder and he just starts yanking the side of the door off in order to see if there's something inside. And Chad comes in and interrupts him and he tells Chad to go and use the ladies' room. (laughs) And Chad is clearly not happy about being told to do this. He's like, does the sheriff know you're doing this? I'm going to go tell the sheriff. I mean, if we didn't hate Chad enough already, not only is he corrupt, but he, he's basically also a, a snitch. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm going to go tell the sheriff what you're doing.
0: He's such a knob.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and Hawk manages to get the whole of the one side of the door off and reaches inside and pulls out some very distinctive pieces of ruled paper yeah. with writing on them, which can surely only be missing pages from Laura Palmer's diary. Yeah. It has to be. And I think we all know what's going to be written on there.
0: Yeah. yeah. The good Dale is in the lodge and he cannot leave. The message that Annie gave to Laura when she appeared in a dream or vision to Laura in Fire Walk With Me. And we know that David Lynch has said you know, that this did actually happen. Mm. Um, that Laura did go ahead and write it. I know in part zero, our first sort of cherry pie and coffee episode, we speculated that maybe that is written. And that would have an effect on some of the timelines in secret history and and potentially in the the show now. What it looks like is it hasn't actually changed history, potentially, or changed reality. What it's done is been left as a marker for 25 years later and as a clue for the future. So we always thought it would be something that, you know, might have been forgotten about or utilized much earlier on in the in the process you know as soon as cooper is gone maybe that would have been prevented in some way mm. but now we know that potentially if this is a selection of pages from the diary and that's what it contains which is it has to be the most likely thing um it could be the something missing mm. um you know missing from the diary which Hawke has been given the task of um identifying from the log lady
2: yeah and we were trying to think of who might have put the pages from the diary in there and we could only really come it with two suspects which is uh slash bob
0: yeah because he was ripping pages out of the diary anyway so he would have had them whether they were found with the diary during the investigation or not
2: yeah and mike yeah so they sent us down a bit of a rabbit hole of trying to piece together the exact series of events of when the pages are torn out and when people are known to have them. So we know that Leland, while possessed by Bob, tears the pages out of Laura's diary and she sees Bob um, looking for the the diary. And she then goes and gives one diary to Harold, but then she also has a, a new diary that she starts, that she puts the key in. But, is, but which is the diary that he's torn the pages out of?
0: So I think it's the secret diary because that's where she writes down everything about Bob. And that's the one which is hidden. And she has a vision of Bob looking behind her dresser trying to find it.
2: Yeah.
0: Um. So that's the one that when she realises Bob has found it or Leland's found it. That's the one which she gives to Harold. So That's missing some pages as well, I think.
2: Yeah. But then in the train car, right before she dies, Leland has pages from the diary on him. Yeah. And then we know that after she died, Hawke says that he found um, some damaged pages from a diary and the bloody towel near the train car. Yeah.
0: So those are in the secret diary, I think.
2: Yeah. So either Leland, while possessed by Bob, had the pages... With him when he killed Laura, then the following day he gets taken to the police station because she's been found, and maybe Bob realizes that, in, you know, he probably shouldn't be walking around with the page from the diary on him and the circumstances, so puts them into the door, or Leland slash Bob tries to destroy the pages of the diary the night of Laura's murder. But we know that Mike was there and we know that he was hanging around the train car trying to intervene in some way. So if he found them, but Philip Gerard wouldn't necessarily know what any of it meant. No. But Mike would know what it meant. And is that the same bathroom stall in the men's room where Philip Gerard collapses because he hasn't taken his medication? Yeah,
0: so he's taken the haloperidol to suppress Mike's re-emergence in himself.
2: Yeah. And that's where they find the syringe, and the without chemicals he points clue comes into fruition. Yeah. So if Mike sort of regained control of Philip Gerard at that point, could he have hidden the pages there, or could Philip Gerard have hidden the pages there before Mike came out? In him?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's the most likely thing, actually, because it was a sh- it was a because it was a scene that showed him specifically in one of the stalls, and you would kind of imagine that that's what's happened. So he might have. Just before he turned, um, or tried to suppress, you know, the appearance of Mike, it could have happened then, you know, somehow. Um, it's a weird thing to have happened, and it's a very strange and specific callback to something that happened in the original show. Um, but my guess is it is going to be Mike, and he he must have done it then. Whether he was, you know, doing it deliberately or trying to hide it in some way, it's unclear. Um, but it's interesting. It's almost like that message eventually found its way back hawk yeah Um, but then the counter to this is we've made these predictions before (laughs) (laughs) and maybe it's nothing i mean it could be something else it could be some other document it could be some other message that's been written Hmm. it's highly unlikely it has to be pages from the secret diary but yeah i yeah i don't think what else it could be they certainly look like kind of yellowed handwritten pages so if that takes place at this point in time then we know that this could be the moment when hawk realizes where dale is or has been for a long time yeah which does make you then wonder how the timeline works in the future because there's that bit in part one when he wanders off and he sees the entrance to the black lodge he yeah. goes to ghostwood forest he's talking to margaret on the phone but he He never went in. It didn't show what happened after that. He kind of is using his torch and he sees the curtains, but he doesn't go in. Now, that scene could be coming up after this. Mm. You know, it could be a moment where he then goes to have a look. He must know where these entrances are because he would have heard from Harry where he'd been uh, the night that Cooper was taken and and then released. But the interesting thing is, Cooper's not in the lodge anymore. Yeah. He's out of the lodge, isn't he? He's now assumed the uh, form of Dougie Cooper in his in his life, because Dougie's been taken back to the Lodge and been deflated or whatever, and Cooper is out of the Lodge. So I'm not sure how that's going to play out.
2: No, I mean, is there some part of Cooper that is still in the Lodge, which is why he is incomplete in some way?
0: Well, that could be it. Maybe that is an element of the something missing. You're right. I mean, maybe he needs to have that return to him to make him complete again. You know, whether it's the equivalent of the gold sphere that needs to get found um, and brought back out of the lodge in some way. So again, leaving us tantalisingly hanging on to knowing what Hawke is going to do next. We see him leave, and I think he's gone to find Frank, because we then cut to that kind of operations room at the back of the sheriff's department. And we have a follow-up to the interaction that Doris had with Frank in the previous episode, so Frank is doing stuff with two of the deputies, Chad and I think Jesse, who's the other guy. Mm. And there's the old woman who's the controller, um, who, who's on uh, dispatch and, and taking calls, etc. cetera. And you hear Doris shouting down the corridor and she's complaining about the fact the car isn't working, the one that belonged to her father. And Frank immediately goes to reassure her, says, we'll sort it out. And he kind of leads her away to kind of calm her down as well. And I think what's really nice about this interaction is what happens next because chad being you know the real chad that he is (laughs) um he kind of comes up with some statement like i wouldn't tolerate this you know this behavior from doris and um the woman who's on dispatch i can't remember her character's name she explains that frank and doris had a son who committed suicide as a result of i think probably post-traumatic stress disorder you know after being in um, a war of some kind in the, you know in the recent past and this has kind of completely traumatized both of them and it's appeared to have actually altered Doris's behavior quite a lot I mean mm-hmm. it's clearly been a huge mental strain on her as well and it's strange how everyone has sympathy towards her they understand that a terrible thing has happened they've lost their child but Chad just doesn't get it. He's just so insensitive and lacking in compassion or empathy. And I like the fact that the woman on Dispatch kind of rolls her eyes and is just like, she just can't be bothered to deal with this kind of nonsense from Chad. And it's strange because both the, the interaction between Frank and Doris and Janie and Dougie, in the last episode, I think I viewed them as kind of people who were quite exasperated with dealing with a very high-maintenance spouse. This episode, I think it's really transformed. It's shown how much they actually care for their spouses. Mm. Both of them, actually. And I think it's a very tender moment to see how the initial perception was one thing, but they've turned it on its head a little bit, and you see it's a very different relationship. And actually, Frank is almost taking on a similar role to Ed looking a little bit after Nadine as well. Yeah, yeah. um, Where he... He has to look out for her and take care of her and i think you realize that's how strong their bond is so however whiny it seemed doris was now we have an explanation for what's maybe triggered this behavior it makes us feel a lot more sympathetic i think towards what's going on but that scene does end with this strange bit where chad is just kind of brushing everything off and then it cuts to jesse sitting next to him who is He looks kind of spaced out, quite serene, almost meditative, just staring into space. Um, It's very bizarre.
2: Yeah, because the only other time we've really seen Jesse was when he came in to announce that Wally was outside. And he just kind of sauntered into the room and struck that slightly bizarre pose uh, and just looked at everyone. And, And this time he's just kind of staring into space with this unfathomable expression.
0: I wonder if he's just somebody who has learnt to tune out Chad. (laughs) Which is kind of a state that I think most people should aim to achieve in life. (laughs) To tune out the Chads of this world.
2: (laughs) And then we cut to the Roadhouse. And it's back to the... I hesitate to use the word traditional because it only happened four times. But it's back to the original structure of it ending at the Roadhouse. There's no unnerving... Continuation of the story once we get the live music playing, and uh, this week is Sharon Van Ent. Uh, Sweet, so nice, kind of dreamy music playing us out, and that's it for another week.
0: As the credits roll, I was trying to work out where I'd seen her before, and I realised she was in the OA. Ah, uh, I
2: uh, I didn't watch that because you said not to bother. <laughs> By the way, I did watch the last five minutes because you said watch this; it's bonkers. Go so not
0: Right, so that's it for our roundup of part six. It's, I think, the most emotionally engaging episode of The Return so far. So much happens. It doesn't seem like a lot happens, but it's punctuated with very important uh, plot points. Things are really moving forward. It brings in, as we were saying right at the start, a lot of the tone that we felt maybe in Fire Walk With Me. But also it has some of the gentler moments that the Twin Peaks universe had as well. Uh, most notably in the scene in the diner etc and it's clear that things are moving back to Twin Peaks it's converging back on the town we're starting to see the influence of lodge activity on Twin Peaks and that's probably going to be the draw which is going to bring Cooper back Um, but the actual explicit event which is going to take place and be the crux if there is going to be one of the mystery aspect of the show that is going to need Cooper to actually return and investigate is unclear. Um, And I think what's also interesting is they've explicitly brought back the magician concept as well Mm. in the form of Red, so I'm really intrigued to know how that's going to play out. Um,
2: We didn't really get anything this time of what's happening in Buckhorn. Yeah. And the whole Ruth's murder, mysterious body, which is probably going to be Briggs, isn't it? Yeah. I think by this point we're fairly certain. We didn't get anything happening there at all. The last we saw of it was the military were on their way and the police had found the ring, Dougie's ring, in the body of presumably Major Briggs. So presumably we're going to go back to that next time and actually see that progress.
0: Yeah. And I think it's going to probably end up with, well, if it is Briggs, I think it does seem like, you know, if he swallowed the ring or did something, one aspect of it is that I know we speculated it could be part of some crazy ritual, mm-hmm. but maybe he swallowed it knowing that when it was found, it would be a clue for the FBI to go and track down and find Cooper. Maybe he knew that Cooper had the potential to switch into Dougie Cooper's life. Yeah. And it was his final message that he could leave as a clue to get the FBI to uh, to find the real Cooper. Because that's the one thing they're missing at the moment. And maybe it wouldn't just find the real Cooper but it would show that the one that's in prison is the bad Cooper yeah. as well and certainly that's a whole plot which hasn't really been affected this week I mean it ended with that crazy phone call uh from <laughs> bad Coop to Argentina potentially mm. and all these strange references to Mr Strawberry
2: yeah or, or as uh, I'm worried about Coop would say Mr Strawberry ooh <laughs>
0: We have yeah, um, we have lots of aspects of that which kind of just
2: <laughs> <laughs> hello to I'm worried about Coop. Hello, <laughs> um,
0: yeah, we have this, this section where you know we still want to know what Chantel and her husband are up to because they're going to be invoked by Bad Coop to do something. Um, we know that potentially Bad Coop is in Yankton Prison. We know that's where Ray might be if they're in the same place. We don't have a clue how that's going to work out. Going back to the bigger mysteries, we still don't know much more about who the billionaire is. We don't know what's going on with the glass box.
2: It all feels like so long ago now.
0: Yeah. It's just there's, there's a lot happening. Um, and again, it will be really great to sit down and watch the whole thing in one go eventually. Mm, yeah, um, We have the dossier. We have no idea what's going on in Buenos Aires. And in terms of the return of Twin Peaks residents, I mean, it can only be a matter of time before we see the Haywoods. Big Ed Hurley, Betty Briggs, and the long-awaited return of Audrey Horne. Yes. Or Audrey Justice Wheeler.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and hopefully her theme with her.
0: Yeah, so all that's left is to say... Thank you to everyone who has listened to this episode of Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee. Thank you to everyone who's been listening to our other episodes as well in the run-up to this. Thank you for sharing our episodes, retweeting them, liking them and getting in touch, giving us feedback. It's really nice to hear from uh, people who are listening and it's great to talk to everyone out there as well with such great theories and camaraderie out there uh, around on Twitter at the moment.
2: Yeah, and... If there's any space in your brain for non-Twin Peaks related stuff happening at the moment, um, and let's face it, it is basically occupying most of our lives and all of our thought processes during the day. But we had to see Wonder Woman and it's absolutely fantastic. And we've just put up a Cakes and Nail episode about the film. It's only mildly spoilery, but highly recommend that you do go and see the film. Um, and then we've, we've got our episode reviewing that that's just gone up as well.
0: So please follow us on Twitter at TFCAA. You can find us on Facebook, Time for Cakes and Ale. We have a website, timeforcakesnail.com. And if you feel so inclined, please do uh, leave a review for us on uh, iTunes if you want to. A nice one, please. And a positive <laughs> five-star one.
2: I'm going to also be putting up our next poll from Cole any time now. Uh, we've got an idea of what it's going to be. So drop by Twitter for that. And do join us next time when we'll be covering part Lucky 7. Goodbye. Goodbye.